and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Hello, I'm Emma Penny, producer of On Opinion, which is now part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. I'd like to share with you another podcast from the network, Out of Order, produced by German Marshall Fund. It seeks to answer how we can bring order to our world. Search Out of Order on your podcast app and subscribe. We could not be more pleased than to be talking to John Rust today. John Rust is one of the foremost experts anywhere in the world on measuring opinions, measuring how we think. John, it's a tremendous pleasure to, to, to have you here. You're a fellow of the Leverhulme Center for the Future of Intelligence, and critically for our case, the author of Modern Psychometrics, the Science of Psychological Assessment, in its fourth edition, no less, um, for which congratulations. But thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Tori. It's great to be with you. John, can I start off by asking you what psychometrics are? Well, psychometrics is the science of psychological assessment. It's very old. It's been around for thousands of years. In ancient China, the emperor used to use psychometric methods, as we now know they were, in order to assess the um, candidates who wanted to serve in his court. Uh, It's based on a set of scientific principles, which I'll briefly say they're reliability, That is, you want to know if you take a measure of a human characteristic, is it free from error? Would different people make the same judgment? Or is it likely to change dramatically on what day you make it? The second characteristic is validity. We may all agree that a person has a certain characteristic and say, well, people with this characteristic are going to be really good at this job and I'm recruiting for this job. But we may be wrong just because we both agree with each other. It's a reliable measure doesn't mean it's valid. And thirdly, standardization, when we get a result of an assessment, what does it mean? What will someone with this particular score on a test actually be able to do? How do they compare with other people who've also got scores on this test? Are they in the highest group or the lowest group? And not just which group are they in, not whether it's more or less than other people, But what skills are they likely to do? Could they actually do the job, even though they may not be the best person at it? And last but not least, certainly freedom from bias. Uh, All assessments have the potential to be biased, whether it be in terms of gender, ethnicity, race, social class or whatever. And the consequence of using any form of assessment, even if it's just my personal judgment, in a biased way, means that we're going to be start being unfair to people depending on group they're in. And of course, this is wrong in itself, but it's also illegal in most countries to have this form of bias. So within psychometrics, we have a scientific method of assessing all these four characteristics and ensuring that when we make decisions about other people, whether it's in education, work or any other framework, 
we are doing it in the best possible way. There have been um, enormous advances in science over the last few hundred years. And psychometrics is in many ways one of the most important or influential areas of applied psychology. After all, we are assessed from the cradle to the grave in terms of our job, our education, uh, our mental health and so on. So the potential, if you get it wrong, can be quite serious. And there have been many examples of where people have got it wrong. Uh, some of the earlier psychometricians, for example, were influential in statistics and also quite involved with, with Charles Darwin. Uh, in many ways, Francis Galton, Darwin's cousin, is seen as the originator of psychometrics. But he was in many ways a dreadful influence. He was the developer of the idea of eugenics, that is, that we should be making sure that we improve the human race. He thought that in his way of improving the human race was trying to get rid of all the people he thought weren't improving it. Uh, so a lot of these policies he was suggesting, sterilization and so on, had really, really bad effects. On the other hand, it's a science which has improved our educational system no end. Um, before, a hundred years ago, it was just um, who your family were, how well you were known, how much money your parents had would decide you went to school or not. It was the introduction of the SAT test, meritocracy and so on, that gave everybody an opportunity to get an education. So it's a remarkably important area of science, particularly of psychology. If you can get it right, we can do a lot of good. If you get it wrong, there can be disasters. I want to dig a little bit deeper into both the getting it right and the getting it really tremendously wrong as we go through. I know it's a huge concern and interest of yours, the ethics of, of psychometrics. But can I take you back um, to, the, to, to ancient China um, and ask you to give us a little bit of the history of psychometrics? Because it's fascinating. You, you, there, there's, a, there's suggestions that Hippocrates, that Galen, that Aristotle thought about humans in this sort of graphy way, this way of sort of measuring them against scales. Um, of course, it's instrumentalized and, uh, and used as, an, as, an, as, a, as a weapon of state or as a tool of state by the Chinese. But can you give us a little bit of that history? Yes, well, it's interesting. The ideas have developed both in the East and the West. Of course, um, uh, Galen and Hippocrates, even Aristotle, were several hundred years, in many ways, almost a thousand years later than the early Chinese. Um, thinkers on this topic. Uh, the idea of assessment for the emperor's court was fairly central those few thousand years ago. They would assess skills, which weren't just reading, writing, and arithmetic, though they were there, but in, also included things like archery and horsemanship. So these were seen as important. There were uh, characteristics such as honesty, um, loyalty, and so on, which were recognized as important and also were assessed. And there were virtues, such as being honourable and so on. Uh, there were six of each of these, so they even had a classification system back then of um, three, uh, six or 18 different characteristics. So uh, all of these were assessed, and in order to do this, they had examination halls, they had a principle which said there had to be two people assessing each of the characteristics, and they'd assess the extent to which they agreed with each other. They made sure that there was no cheating. So a lot of these principles, which began then, followed on. And rather interestingly, it was the British East India Company in Shanghai that learnt about the Chinese methodology. 
they introduced it to their own colonies in Bengal. And it was once um, the British nationalized the East India Company. They were introduced and formed the basis of recruitment into the Indian civil service system that was subsequently copied by the Americans and the French. Which brings us to the meritocratic, furiously meritocratic French administration system to get into the École Normale d'Administration, which sounds like an exact repeat of the Chinese Imperial Service, um, the civil service exams in the UK. Not much has changed in a few thousand years. Uh, Well, that hasn't changed. What people are trying to do, there are some major errors which are made. For example, these systems are good at looking individual differences within a group. So if you have a lot of people who've had the same education or same opportunities for education, they can quite easily discriminate between those who are able to learn and make good progress and those who are having difficulty learning. A lot of the early tests of this were up there to identify learning difficulties. Where it goes wrong is that if groups have different education, then the two things get confounded. So if I apply a meritocratic system, say to two groups, which I'll call A and B, to perform any argument, uh, and I have the same pass mark for each, then I'm going to finish up selecting more people in one group than I am in the other. And this has nothing to do with individual differences in their ability to learn within the group. It's because one of the groups may well have a lower overall level. And it can be the case of quite small differences between these groups can suddenly lead to quite large inequalities in recruitment. And if this is recruitment at primary school, secondary school, university, and to job, and eventually into a career and promotion in a career, uh, it has the potential to introduce quite big disadvantages for the group which has been seen less favourably by the society in which they live. Of course, that varies from one society to another. One group may be successful in one society, but be at the bottom of the heap in another society. Can we jump into this question of intelligence, which is, in the instances that you've brought up, the thing that's being measured, um, before we get to personality type tests and the Myers-Briggs or the, or the Big Five and the others. But if we can we start with intelligence and look at sort of how have we understood intelligence and how has that changed over the period that psychometrics around intelligence have been around? Well, Darwin um, was, I have to say, unashamedly racist. I mean, you only have to read The Descent of Man to see this. He quite clearly states that he thinks that the civilized nations are more ahead of the lesser races. He actually uses that term as opposed to savages. Uh, People have argued that this was sort of justified at the time because that's the way Europeans were thinking at that time. But in fact, that's not the case. There were plenty of other people who thought differently about it. But he, of course, was very influential. Uh, Galton picked up this idea that he also was very into evolution. And you can still see the impact of these ideas today in an area called evolutionary psychology, which is very popular with a certain group of more right-wing psychologists, I would have to say. Now, there's a certain compulsion to it. You can see why they believe this, but most of us treat it as a joke. But for lots of people, it's very serious. So the idea that um, men in the ancient world or in the jungle had to run about and chase things to catch animals or women would sit at home cooking, 
then this means that men are genetically better at running around catching things and women are better at sitting at home cooking. And from there you get on, I suppose, to the idea that men are better at fighting, so they should be doing all the fighting and the women are better at chatting because they sit at home cooking. And from there, it's a small leap to the idea, well, that's what they're meant to do. Uh, and therefore, we shouldn't try and change things because the genes have said that's how we are meant to be. Um, well, we now know that's wrong. I mean, many people 100 years ago said, well, if God had meant us to fly, he'd have given us wings. They shouldn't be inventing aeroplanes. I remember when I was a kid, my vicar said, there's no way humans will ever get into space. This was a long time ago. I have to <laughs> my age away here. Uh, because they weren't meant to be there. Uh, this is a very compulsive way a lot of people find satisfying. And clearly Galton and Darwin fit into that category. So once you bring evolution into it, you then had a group of people who said, well, that's really interesting because that explains why people like me are so clever and why all these foreigners are so stupid. We are meant to be in charge of everything because we've inherited the appropriate genes to be in charge. So you can see it's the foundation of a lot of right-wing and outright views. And it's ideas of intelligence, studies of intelligence differences between races, have been really quite central to a lot of the right-wing thinking. It still is today, it's still quite obsession with them. Even as recently as 30 years ago, giving my age away again, um, the bell curve was written, which tried to show that um, people in the inner cities were breeding too much and lowering the average IQ of society and how dreadful it was that stupid people were allowed to have more children and that intelligent people were somehow restricting the number of children they had. So, I mean, that's only, well, almost into the 21st century. Uh, we now know really that this can't be true. Um, I'm not saying this just from a biased point of view. I am biased, of course, because I come from a fairly large multiracial family. But um, we know it's not true because the twin studies which they said supported the idea that its identical twins are more similar than non-identical twins in their IQ scores, which proves it's genetic. And they argued that not only is it genetic, but it's largely genetic. And the differences you get between groups are too big to have been explained by environmental factors. We now know from the work of Jim Flynn, who sadly died a few months ago, that um, this can't be true. The Flynn effect has shown that scores on IQ tests, I'm not saying intelligence, but scores on IQ tests have gone up by uh, about three IQ points per decade for the last 100 years. This means effectively that we're now 30 IQ points higher than we were 100 years ago. Uh, a lot of people don't really get this. They think we really have become more intelligent. <laughs> and of course, the young people say, well, of course, we're more intelligent. There are some grandparents who would probably contest this, of course. But, <laughs> <laughs> but Jim was um, a bit more insightful than that. And he said, well, if this was a true, that would mean that 50% of my grandparents or great-grandparents would have been uh, uh, be diagnosed of being intellectually subnormal. And he just didn't believe that was true for very sensible reasons. Uh, the more immediate point 
is that looked at in this way, we can take the American example, which is where most of the race IQ debates come. The average IQ of black Americans in the year 2000 is higher than the average IQ of white Americans in the year 1970. Now, this has to be an environmental effect. It's much bigger than any difference as they were claiming they had between the races. This fact on its own is sufficient to show that it's not the case that we need to have a genetic explanation for differences between groups and intelligence. I know I've labored this point, but I think it's such an important one and it's worth saying over and over again. Um, it's important partly because as a reaction to the pressure of the race IQ debate in the 1980s and 90s, a lot of psychology degrees stopped teaching psychometrics altogether. Uh, and that was not good because how are we going to prove people are wrong if you don't actually discuss the issue which they're putting there? It left a lot of prejudices unchallenged. We have a situation in the UK, for example, where black kids until at least a few years ago and still to some extent in inner cities, particularly black boys, underachieve at school, particularly in mathematics. It was a huge problem. Um, unless you actually are willing to dismiss the genetic argument, you're less likely that anyone will do anything about it. If you leave this unchallenged, you'll have the white majority race, even the kids saying, well, of course they are, you would expect that because they're black and we've read these studies which say they won't do so well. If you take the alternative view, that if it's not genetic, it's environmental, then you immediately think in a different way. You think, well, how is this injustice come about? How can we be treating a group in our society so badly? What can we do about it? This really had to be challenged, and increasingly now it is, I think. We've moved on since the 1980s and 90s, but it's certainly been part of my fight for the last 40 years of trying to get these issues addressed, and certainly not talking about them hasn't helped. John, you, you couldn't have given a more impassioned but also clear description of this important fourth factor of, of psychometrics, which is the freedom from bias. It's the perfect example of what happens when your bias creeps into notions of validity or where your notions of validity are, are wrong. Um, what tremendous social, cultural, political impact. Can I ask us to move on to the other area of psychometry, which would be personality tests? Um, again, a, a very messy, fraught ethically challenged um, uh, and fascinating space. Can I ask you to kick off, if that's okay, John, by helping us understand the four big buckets of theories. You've got psychoanalytical with Sigmund Freud, you have the humanistic, the social learning approach, and then the genetic, which obviously feeds into much of the work that you do. Can you give us a quick sort of tour of the horizon of those four ideas? When you're assessing abilities, um, there's much more of a consensus than when you're assessing personality. Personality theories are part of our philosophy. So the way in which we look at personality depends very much on who we are, on our religion, our temperament, on various aspects of it. And as a consequence, there are a very large number of different personality theories. And the different personality theories are not a, simply a case of one being true and another false. It's often a question of different layerings. That is, people are looking at human individual differences in different ways. Uh, the um, psychoanalyst, for example, under Sigmund Freud, had a 
very, still very influential model. Freudian psychology is actually pretty influential as well as psychometrics. Uh, not in psychology anymore, but in advertising and marketing, you'll see endless influence of these types of ideas and in social sociology as well. Freud's ideas took the idea of there being an it, that is a basic drive that was we were born with, which was something that was aggressive, um, angry, sexual. It was something that was out of control. And in the first four or three or four years of life, a child has to learn to control this. It does it with the development of what's called the ego, the reality principle that enables the child to bring its unconscious motivations from the id under control. So it's a model that says we start off with these forces which are trying to make us have sex or eat or drink or look after ourselves. We learn to control them. And a good society is one in which we do this properly. We can contrast that with Carl Rogers, for example, and another group of early psychologists who had a completely different approach to it. Carl Rogers also started off as a therapist, but he particularly didn't like the, what he saw the authoritarian nature of Freudian psychoanalysis. He thought, why should we be telling people what to do? Why is it the job of parents to say, this is what you've got to do? Why is it that the parents are somehow all the things which keep these evil forces coming from the id under control? <laughs> Freud's idea, according to Rod, was something like original sin, and people are born evil and then become good. So Roger's idea was the opposite. He had this idea that evil that we do is taught to us by our parents. If we are allowed to evolve in a sort of Californian open source environment, we would just naturally be good. We are born good and are then conditioned to be evil by society. That's a massive difference in philosophy. <laughs> right. And it's associated with different ideas of what personality is, how it evolves. Personality theory is just so vast a subject, and each one of these has come up with a different approach. So that leads into the humanistic um, understanding of personality. How would you describe so the social learning approach? I suppose it's a continuation of that. Uh, it is a continuation, but it, it's, it's not, it's, it has less of the good and evil side of it, I would find. I hope Freud and Rogers will forgive me for describing it as that, but that's how it seems to be. Uh, social learning, it's all about learning or imitation. So this means that society is entirely responsible, yes, it's similar in that way, uh, to how we grow up. So it's nothing to do with our genes. It's nothing to do with the first, even the first five years of life. Uh, whatever we do, um, we can learn to do differently. And it's the job of society to find good ways of training people. We get that, for example, in cognitive behavior therapy, uh, which is based on the similar idea that if someone is depressed, uh, a psychologist wouldn't, this type of psychologist wouldn't say they're depressed, they'd say they had negative cognitions. That's the psychological way of saying, you're saying, thinking things like, Life is not worth living. Right. I don't see any point in doing that. And you have to replace them with positive cognitions, such as things are getting better all the time. Right. Um, it may have been a bad day, but tomorrow will be fine, and so on. So that's a question of imposing um, learning particular ways of thinking. And 
an example of that would be this idea of the social construct is particularly important for theories, personality theories based on social learning. So the idea that boys are brought up and are reinforced with trucks and footballs and girls are brought up and reinforced with Barbies and pink dresses, etc. Exactly. But there is it's nothing innately yeah. gendered in our personality. And the fourth would be this genetic approach, which would be, which as, as you say, is deeply problematic in all sorts of different ways, um, but which forms the basis, or at least part of the basis of quite a lot of the psychometric work that you've been doing at the psych psychometry has been involved with these last these last few years. What would its underlying principles, how would you describe its underlying principles? Well, yeah, it, it's evolved. I mean, it's, it's really important because it's the field in which psychometric, the mathematics of psychometric, I should say, evolved. It was Galton who invented statistics. He invented the standard deviation. Carl Pearson, all these people are now banned at University College, no longer having their lecture theatres named after them, were the early psychometricians. Things like correlation coefficients and so on all date back to them. So they were very influential in developing our methodology. Uh, and there's no way psychometrics is going to abolish, you know, regression and model statistical modelling, because at all it's the foundation of practically all statistical science today. Uh, but yes, it has been influential in psychometrics, but it's, uh, you can use the models without having the theory. So um, Galton's fascinating because uh, I suppose for most lay people, our idea of psychometric tests or psychographic tests are things like the Myers-Briggs test, which you could find online, I think is, is downloaded or done tens of millions of times a year by the broader internet and people discover whether they are an INTJ or an ENFP or whatever it is. Um, every time I do the test, it varies slightly and I, and I, and I like my whatever category I'm put into less. But um, there is an, there's an interesting idea here, which while there's a, a, perhaps an element of hocus pocus around the way that Myers-Briggs has got this sort of um, place on this particular pedestal, there has been lots of work around personalities using those kind of tools. You you, you, perhaps you might talk to us about Cattrall. Perhaps you might also talk to us about Galton, who, um, who starts off trying to um, build a model of what a personality might look like by looking at all the words and adjectives that humans use to describe each other. It seems like such a, an inventive, imaginative way of trying to decode what personality might be. Yes, exactly. The Galton's lexical hypothesis. The idea is quite simply this, that if people vary from one another, we should have a word to describe what the variation is. If we've got a word and it exists in more than one language, that was his original prescription, then how come it exists in all these languages if it's not important, globally important, regardless of your background and culture? So if you can actually identify all of the words which everybody uses, such as sociable, outgoing, um, anxious, uh, accurate, and so on, and somehow develop a statistical model or a test which will cluster these together in a particular way, you'll have the foundation, really, of, modern of a psychometric method. And it is actually the basis of most modern psychometric testing methods of personality. That Interestingly, because this all developed in the early 19th century, they were a bit worried at the time 
that psychology wasn't being treated properly as a science. They said, uh, you know, well, it evolved out of philosophy. It was called moral philosophy at one time. The, it's the perennial concern of psychology that it's not being treated as a proper science. Yeah. I mean, physics used to be called natural philosophy as well. So, I mean, <laughs> moral philosophy came later. But they, they thought people, many people thought it was the job of the, of the church uh, or any religion, whatever religion you're in, to um, deal with these ethical issues. So there were plenty of words which are used to describe people, particularly good and bad, which they deliberately left out of this particular analysis, which I think is a rather intriguing aspect of so-called objectivity, because after all, these are the words we use. Um, Skinner argued that uh, psychology was a science of prediction and control of behavior. Well, okay, saying someone is an extrovert enables you to predict and control behavior, but also saying that they're good or bad also enables you to predict or control behavior. So we notice that the psychologists had deliberately left out one of the main predictors, not necessarily of whether the people's behavior was good or bad, but whether people would treat them in a particular way. It was deliberately excluding some of its own subject. This is interesting because modern AI techniques um, don't do that. An AI doesn't cannot ignore things. It's not a human being. It doesn't have our ethics. So it can quite rapidly identify whether someone's behavior is such that it would be considered to be good or bad because it enables it to predict and control what they're likely to do. It has no ethics and therefore is better at predicting someone's ethics than people who have ethics. Um, so Galton starts with thousands and thousands of words, which he groups into synonym buckets, whatever it might be, friendly, agreeable, social, gentle, kind. I don't know what, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of I'm aggregating them perhaps wrongly. Um, and eventually we end up 30 years ago or so with, um, with a model which suggests that there are in fact 16 personality types. And that's Cattrall, Ray Cattell, um, which is a model which still persists today. The Myers-Briggs is based on a on, on 16 factors uh, or 16 types of personality as well. But actually, what has emerged, sort of bubbled up to the top, and sort of perhaps as the only psychometric personality test that there around which there is broad agreement is this thing called Ocean or Big Five. Can I ask you to describe what it is and also <laughs> tell us why why it's one? Why it's one? Yeah, uh, yes. Well. Because there were so many different psychological theories around before the ocean model, which started about 1990, actually, um, all the theories were producing different tests, uh, which meant there were a large number of different tests in use. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, people were starting to realize that ability tests on their own weren't the best way of recruiting staff. They wanted to I mean, the advantage of the test, I suppose, obvious. You can give it to a large number of people, so you can't interview everyone necessarily. So you want to have some tests which are quick and easy to administer. Um, there were studies being carried out to find out which of these personality tests were the most effective at choosing people for jobs. What character traits, say, extradition, was that necessary for sales? Was attention to detail important for airline pilots. I know it's rather obvious, but you know you can see that there are these <laughs> basic things, rules of running here. Uh, they 
looked at the literature and they found that there was a huge diversity of literature. And someone at that time introduced the idea of what's now called meta-analysis, which is a way of taking all the data together from, say, 100 different studies and combining it. It's a bit like what journalists do. I mean, journalists just tend to read all the scientific studies, then write a paper and say, this is my idea, which is sort of a meta-analysis. But we're trying to take it a bit further. We'll say we'll actually take the data from all these studies and statistically combine it. Uh, now, in order to do this, you need to be to measure all of the personality traits on enough of these studies to be able to make it work. And there were quite a lot of these tests. All of them have something that looked like an extroversion scale in them. So they would say, well, regardless if it's the Myers-Briggs or the 16PF or any other scale, OPQ, we'll just take their extroversion scale and meld all of the extroversion scores from these various studies, uh, giving us a sample size of several thousand and see whether overall taking these studies together, it does predict success in sales. And you can do the same with stress. Ability to work under stress is a quite a common personality trait exists in actually every single personality test in one way or another, regardless of the theory. So they managed to do that as well. They found that, yes, it was the case that people who were able to operate under stress were um, more likely to, less likely to cause accidents, basically, if they're flying aeroplanes or doing a dangerous job. And they went on looking for more and more trades. Uh, and some were easy. Uh, openness to experience turned out to be quite important. Can you consider new things or are you very conventional, just prefer to do things in the usual way? Uh, can you attend to detail? Are you sort of tactical or strategic? Uh, but by the time they got beyond five of these trades, they found they were coming from Left, left field all the time. There was no consensus on what the six or the sevens tray would be among all these personality tests. So they said, right, we're going to analyze these five. And this somehow just became the accepted way of doing it. And there's nothing magic about it. it isn't, I don't think anyone ever said there are only five personality traits. There are others that aren't there. Machiavellianism or narcissism aren't there. Uh, they stopped at five, and because these were the most useful five for use in work settings, because that's where the research was carried out, these just became the norm. Understood. But nobody was saying there aren't plenty of others. That it's actually, it's utilitarian. It's that what's the most efficient way of getting to information, which is useful for making predominantly hiring decisions. Let's just, I realize we haven't been through them, but open, but OCEAN, or the big five personality test, which many of you will have, list, have, have done, is openness to experience, C for conscientiousness, E for extroversion, A, agreeableness, and N, neuroticism. You've, talk, you've talked about openness to experience and conscientiousness for pilots, for example. Extroversion we've touched on. Can we talk to these two um, seemingly very loaded terms, the last two, agreeableness and neuroticism? What are, what are meant by those? Okay. Well, if you look at agreeableness, this, the earlier test psychometric tests were largely developed by academics, and they were developed using students. Uh, and agreeableness really is how well you get on with the other students. Right. Not how sociable you are, but you know whether you sort of think they should be allowed to do what they want and uh, that you shouldn't be telling them what to do. 
the opposite was, was sometimes called tender-mindedness. The opposite was called tough-mindedness, that is, the ability to make tough decisions about people. When we started um, applying this model within occupational settings, we found that quite a lot of very successful people were not agreeable, i.e. they were tough-minded, particularly human resource professionals, for example, <laughs> get low scores on agreeableness. And if you actually look at the items in the test and think these are the people who have to fire you, um, of course they have to be able to make tough decisions. So there again, um, we tend not to use the word agreeable when we're using it in work-based settings. Most occupational work-based tests do, don't call it agreeableness in in the um, OBPI, for example, the Orpheus personality test, it's called authority. And neuroticism, of course, well, it, that developed, I think, developed the term for work in a psychiatric hospital to identify neurotic patients. Right. Uh, because, again, it was his model that was working and it was done on students. It's still called neuroticism. Rather oddly, it still appears in ocean. But in work-based settings, we now call it emotion. Neurotic people clearly are more emotional. And it also enables you to say, well, it's not being not neurotic isn't the opposite. It's actually being unemotional is the opposite. So you can argue that people with low scores on this particular tray can't recognize anxiety or emotion in others because they don't experience it themselves. John, can I begin to wrap this with a big question about immutability? Because um, as you say, going back to your four key requirements for a decent psychometric test, reliability, validity, standardization, and freedom from bias. Um, this reliability element, this standardization piece, the standardization piece here, um, it, does it presuppose that tr these traits are profoundly immutable, that somebody who scores highly on uh, neuroticism or emotion um, or scores highly on an IQ test has got that capacity or has got that label forever is that is that is that right or am i or is that too simplistic a way of understanding the way we well, think about personalities yeah a lot of the traditional models would assume that particularly if you take a genetic approach um there are other approaches in integrity testing for example where things are based on choice so you can you can when people have um, anger management courses so you can change your levels of anger for example uh, though that said it one of the ways in which tests are developed is you actually develop tests which are reliable, which means you will give the same test to the same people with a month apart. And you only choose items to go in the test if they are reliable. Well, these, of course, means you're choosing items that don't change. So in many ways, you're actually designed the test to pick up things which are endurable. Right. I, I think a second um, more interesting aspect of it is um, that the personality testing using classical test theory is used a model that came from mobility testing, which was your score is the number of items you get right, uh, which is a bit odd in personality testing because you wouldn't say giving the right answer to being an extrovert is actually getting it right. right. Uh, it just means that you're responding as an extrovert would do, or if you get it wrong, you're responding as an introvert would do. Modern psychometric method uses computer-adaptive testing, uh, which is a far more sophisticated way of doing it. And if can I look at it from that point of view, 
one thing we can learn is that if someone gets a very high score on an extroversion test or a very low score, we can think that is pretty stable. That's going to last well. But imagine if somebody gets an average score on it. There's no way in classical testing of knowing whether or not a person with an average score is someone who is just bog standard average on everything. That is, they're neither extrovert or introverted. You could actually get the same score if sometime on some things you're extroverted and some things you're introverted because they both cancel each other out. You still feel with an average score. You compare that with an ability test, for example. If you had 10 items in order of difficulty, if it was a classical test, you could get the first, the easy items right and the difficult ones wrong, and you get a score in the middle. You could also get a score of five if you got them alternately. That is, you got some of the difficult items right and some of the easy ones wrong. You could still get a score in the middle. So a lot of modern psychometric techniques, the machine learning algorithms pick these up quite quickly, can differentiate these. We're getting far better at looking at what characteristics or whether someone's characteristic is stable or whether it's likely to be um, variable than we used to have. John, one of the theories in um, in child rearing, I say this as, as, a, as, a, as a father, um, has been that we should stop thinking and telling our children that they are clever or good at things. We should always focus on um, the work that they're doing and their capacity to improve. It's called the growth mindset in tech Silicon Valley terms. I can't remember what it's called in parenting terms. But the idea is that as soon as we accept immutability or we embed the notion of immutability in the subject, they themselves limit, they limit themselves. Um, do you think there's plausible truth there? Or do you really actually think of the human being as pretty immutable in their qualities and characteristics? I, I think it would demand a very... Um, you're taking a lot of confidence, A, in the parent and belief in what parent happens to believe is true. I mean, I think today there's far more recognition of diversity. Let's put it that way. So, I mean, I'm dyslexic, for example, which I could find is accepted today. Um, but list when I was at school, I mean, I couldn't learn Latin or French, so I couldn't possibly get into Cambridge. Uh, I couldn't spell. Uh, today, I'm I'm honoured to be in the company of various other distinguished persons, far more distinguished than me, I should say, who are also dyslexic. And similarly, in terms of spectrum disorder, autistic spectrum disorder, we now recognise, I think, a huge number of different ways in which um, people think, and that all of us make our own contributions by thinking in all these different ways. The sum is greater than the whole. So, yes, I suppose I'm being a bit anarchistic. I'm saying we shouldn't start telling parents how they ought to treat their children. I think having some parents doing exactly what you said, but I'm sure they're doing that anyway, and other parents doing different things. I mean, keep the diversity up. That way you get more variation. It's a bit like um, uh, biodiversity, isn't it? We're eliminating all these species on the planet because we're sort of using weed colour and so on. Maybe by spreading our values across the internet, we're also eliminating ways of thinking too. What a wonderful way of ducking that question completely um, and saying rather than thinking about whether growth mindsets work or static mindsets work best, um, we should say that actually all these various different mindsets fit into an even broader spectrum of different ways of being, different ways of thinking, um, all of which makes up this the great superorganism that uh, that is humankind. 
I like that. <laughs> John, such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for walking us through this fascinating, problematic, super exciting, and obviously extremely um, appropriate current topic of uh, psychometrics. Okay. Thank you very much. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.